0: Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there may be one in the seat right in front of you. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, just reading on from verse 22 to get us into the context of where we will be as we finish our study today from John chapter 10, verse 22, follow along with me if you would. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then our text for us this morning. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them... Though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan in the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Once again, Lord, I ask for your help. This morning I seek your face. I pray that you would give me power and accuracy from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finish our study of the good shepherd, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 19 explained once again, As Jesus did, his hearers were divided over who he was. Some saying he was demon-possessed. Others said it was impossible for him to be demon-possessed. Those who were demon-possessed do not open the eyes of the blind. And in verse 22-25, through as Jesus was walking in the temple, as we just read in Portico, the Jews surrounded him and asked, uh, him to, uh, to answer a direct question with a direct answer. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, as they gathered around him, hemmed him in, and were poised to stone him to death. And then we see, we have uh, verse 25 through 30, one of many Christological passages in the gospel. Out of these four verses also, we are able to extrapolate doctrines such as election, reprobation, and the perseverance of the saints. Also, we find once again Jesus' claim to deity and oneness and essence with the Father. And then we have the reaction of the Jews. They picked up stones once again to stone Him to death. So this morning we have several points for us. The works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the withdrawing of Jesus, and the welcoming of Jesus. First for us, the works of Jesus. Jews picking up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, "I, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? It was stated in the law that if one committed blasphemy, he was to be stoned. It says in Leviticus 24, verse 16. The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All of the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And so that's what they were seeking to do, erroneously so, as they were making a charge against Jesus. Picture the scene once again Jesus walking in the temple. Of Portico and Solomon's porch, the Jews surrounding him, hemming him in in order to stone him to death. Stones in hand, ready to release with anger and hatred. And Jesus asked them for a reason. The Jews were ready to act here in rage. There was no due process, no hearing, uh, no official indictment. The charges were unfounding. It sounds like our justice system in many ways today. Jesus asked them, for which works are they proceeding to stone him to death for? What works have I done? Works of the Father. Was it healing of the lame man on the Sabbath in chapter 5? The response of the Jews there was to persecute Jesus, because he did these things on the Sabbath. Or was it because he healed the man born blind on the Sabbath in chapter 9? Or was it for feeding the multitudes with only five loaves and two fish? Which one of these were you going to stone him for? Well, the works proved who he was. Many people who witnessed the feeding of the multitudes would say, this is truly the prophet Who has come into the world? Jesus just made another claim to deity to the unbelieving Jews in verse 30. Hence, the stones in their hands. Jesus could, however, back up his claims. He already did by feeding the multitude, healing the blind, healing the sick, and also healing lepers and casting out demons. When Jesus refers to these many good works, these works proved that the one who did them must be of God. What he did, his works, did not contradict who he is, the Son of God. These showed who he was. In other words, these things that he did aligned with what he said. And they knew what claims he was making here. That's why they were seeking to kill him here. This leads to a very important application for us this morning. As we consider, as I consider a question that I would throw out to you this morning. Do the things that you do, how you live, your works contradict or align with who you say you are and who you say you follow? Does the way you live leave without question that you have been transformed by the power of God? Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. James says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So we have the Works of Jesus. Then we have the words of Jesus. The Jews answered him and said, Well, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying and where he was going. They wanted to stone him before. They were, they were poised to do so in chapter 8, verse 59. But their position now was not because of what Jesus was doing, or so they said. It was because of what he was saying. So before is what he was doing on the Sabbath that they said, okay, let's get him. Now we can seize him in order to kill him. Now it was for what he was saying. From their erroneous perspective, they were charging Jesus with blasphemy. It's clear why. He was claiming to be God. Similar to what we found in John 5.18, which says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They are now willing to put aside what he did, the good works. Now, specifically, it was what he said in which they were seeking to condemn him. Their problem, however, is that what he says is the truth. What he says backs up what he does, and what he does backs up what he says. For indeed, Jesus is God. They could not handle that They would not believe, but they understood what he was saying, the claims that he was making. So if anyone ever denies that Jesus never claimed to be God, they are either ignorant, foolish, or they've never read this portion of scripture. Because Jesus, time and time again, as as we have studied out, makes claims to to divinity, to deity, to being who he is. So anyone who denies that has to reconcile these things and repent of their false thinking because it is clear from his word. But this just proves the theological point of man's depravity. No matter what evidence you put before them. Whatever is present, laid before them, Whatever good argument is proclaimed, many will still not believe. You can give all the textual evidence, all the archaeological evidence, all the presuppositional apologetics, the best undisputed statements, and lay it before them. You can get the, the greatest PhD who happens to be a Christian. Who is the best communicator and lay it before them, and they still will not believe. As Jesus said, they do not listen to Moses. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not believe the Word of God, in other words, they will not be persuaded even if one rises from the dead. And indeed, one did rise from the dead, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Not only what Jesus did, his works pointed to his deity. And saying his works, speaking of his signs and and miraculous things that he did, but also what he said, his speech. This leads to another important application for us this morning. Do the things that you say and the way you communicate contradict your profession of faith? Or does it align your profession of faith as a Christian? How you speak, what we, what we say. Would your coworkers, neighbors be shocked when they learn that you're, you're a Christian? And learn that you go to church because your speech is just like theirs. Filthy mouth, silly talk, coarse jesting, Ephesians 5 says. Do the things we say contradict uh, the way that we profess who we follow and who we are as a Christian? Do we have a mouth full of murder, cutting people down? Or do co-workers, neighbors, whoever it may be, say there is something definitely different about this one? I don't know what it is. He talks differently. He he walks differently, as it were. There's something about this guy or this gal that is different, I can tell, because of the way that they talk, what they say. The works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and then the the way of Jesus. When I say the way of Jesus, I'm not referring to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. But I'm referring to the way of Jesus as He referred back to the Scriptures. As He pointed people to the Scriptures, to the Old Testament, as Paul did, as Peter did, as the New Testament writers did. And the Lord did. The way of Jesus. He points them to the scriptures. And we'll need to turn, to turn to Psalm 82 for this. Because we need a little understanding of what is being said here. And I'm going to pull a couple of lifelines for us as well. Uh, two theologians to kind of help us uh, implant this in our minds for understanding. Okay, the way of Jesus, referring back to the Scriptures. He points them to Scripture. Okay, let's just read. I'll read from John for us, and then we'll we'll go to Psalm 82. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? So Jesus is quoting uh, Psalm 82 and verse 6. If he called them gods, lowercase g, to whom the word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, this word here, sanctified here, is not the progressive sanctification that we've been studying under the Order Salutis in Wednesday night. This is sanctified, set apart. Set apart, sent into the world. So Jesus uses Scripture. Simple point. We get it, we understand. But it's profound when we apply it to our individual lives. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. I'll read this and then we'll see what's going on there. He says, God takes his stand in his own congregation, he judges in the midst of the rulers. The rulers now. How long will you, the rulers, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Human judges. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. So those who are re- referred to as gods, lowercase g, Elohim in the Hebrew, Lowercase g. Your sons are the most high. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all of the nations. Okay, so we've read it. We see the quotation there. Now let's see if we can, what it means. The Psalm of Asaph once again. <clears throat> Unjust a judges being rebuked. The psalm is referring to the judges of Israel who are put in place of God. God put them in their place and they are to judge. They are given the expression or title of God's lowercase g because of their God-given role as judges. They're there in God's name exercising authority given to them by God. Yet many did not Act righteously, and that's why we see verse six and seven. Okay, a couple of lifelines, lifelines for us here. Uh, Leon Morris says this: Jesus's point is that the Bible calls gods those who are no more than men. They were themselves the recipients of the word of God. They were required to hear and heed and to obey, and to obey that word in connection with their calling as judges. On occasion, they they were called gods. Okay, James Boyce, he says this. Jesus is saying, I too have been sent into this world by God the Father, that for a specific task. In that task, I exercise authority and power, just as the judges of Israel did. If judges can be called gods, Then how much more should I be called God in the full sense? In other words, this is what he's paraphrasing what Jesus says. How much more should I be called God in the full sense? Since I have received a unique commission and exercise unique power, he says. Again, sanctified, set apart, the Lord. Okay, so we see that reason. Another reason of the importance is understanding this text and the context. So if someone was to go to John chapter 10 and say, I said you are gods. You know what that means? That means men can become gods. And this is a theology that cults form and base a doctrinal statement upon here. And they use this one verse. So that's a reason we need to know where it comes from from Psalm 82. Know the context. Because of how it has been misused. Specifically by Mormons. Who are not Christians. Listen to James White from his book. Uh, Is the Mormon my brother? That's the question. That's the name of the book. I also recommend a letter to a Mormon elder by Dr. James White as well. He says this in his book. The use of this passage in LDS. Which is Latter Day Saints. The use of this passage in LDS literature is widespread. I said you are gods is used to substantiate the idea of a plurality of gods and men becoming gods. Yet even a brief review of the passage demonstrates that such is hardly a worthy interpretation. And some of the leading LDS apologists today avoid trying to press the passage that far and for good reason. The unbelieving Jews seen in this passage with murder in their hearts are hardly good candidates for exaltation to godhood. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus uses the present tense when he says, you are gods. So obviously he is not identifying his attackers as divine beings worthy of worship by their eventual celestial offspring. So we see where this text comes from in the context and how it can be misused. So those who were seeking to stone Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders, should have used their position as religious leaders to examine these things that Jesus was saying as they were, quote-unquote, judges as well. They were to judge these things to look at these things which prove that His Father indeed has sent Him into the world. So Psalm 82, verse 6, You are God's sons of the Most High. Those are leaders and judges put in place by God that will answer to God. Are they deity? No. The charge. Israel's rulers judge, judged unjustly. The religious leaders standing before Jesus in this passage of Scripture in John 10 were just like them from Psalm 82. And this is a rebuke to them as well. An application for us. As we consider world leaders today, anyone given power and authority, that is authority and power delegated by God. Everyone from our governor to whoever it is in the cabinet and Congress and the various branches, they are put there by God. And all over the world, those in authoritative positions have been put there by God. And they will answer to God for how they used that authority, how they used that position for how they ruled. And we will continue to see leaders in our own nation misuse the Bible to justify their wickedness, to justify wicked things that we see happening all over. They will continue to do this and claim this is what the Bible would teach. Jesus says, if if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father, that you may know and keep on knowing that who he is. The works that Jesus did can only be ascribed to to God. If you won't believe his words, believe then his works, because his works alone testify of who he is. If they would believe his works, they would know that he and the Father are one, in essence. He is calling them to believe, not only due to his testimony, but also because of his works, which supported his testimony. So we have the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus as he pointed men back to scripture, as he quoted scripture, and then we have the withdrawing of Jesus. The withdrawing of Jesus. They were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. Time to talk was over from their perspective. They again wanted to get a hold of him. They were either going to grab him to arrest him and take him outside in order to stone him or they were seeking to seize him right then and there to murder him by stoning him. They were acting as judge, jury and their attempts to be executioner as well. But he eluded their grasp. What did this look like exactly as he eluded their grasp? I'm not sure. But we know this, it was impossible for them to lay hands on him simply because it was not yet his time. As A.W. Pink says, they might as well attempt to harness the wind as lay hands on the Almighty. But as they continued to reject Jesus, Jesus withdrew from them. And the more that anyone in here rejects Jesus, as you harden your heart to Jesus, he will draw away from you. The scripture says seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And through our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see how Jesus' arms are are open wide to all who would come to him. But those who continue and continue to reject him time and time again, as your heart grows hardened and hardened like, like Pharaoh's, as we read in Exodus. Jesus will withdraw. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, which I reference often. You want to see, wow, what's going on in our society today? What does it look like when people get hardened and turn away from God and and do wicked things? Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32 says it all. God removes his hand. The withdrawing of Jesus and then the welcoming of Jesus. The welcoming of Jesus. He went away where John was baptizing. Now we're going back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, near the beginning. Remember, John the Baptist says he was baptizing. Jesus went away where John was baptizing. Many came to him and recognized what John said was true. Many believed in him there. Why did they believe in him? Because of the preaching of the Word of God by John the Baptist. It wasn't because John the Baptist became relevant. It wasn't because John the Baptist uh, had these cute little sayings to say to them. No, it's because he preached the word of God. The Jews were overall hostile continually towards Jesus. So the Son of God withdrew from the people and from Jerusalem to the far side of the Jordan River to the place where John the Baptist was first baptizing. John, the the gospel writer, knew this place and includes it here. Unsure exactly how long Jesus stayed at this spot, but we do know that Jesus did not return to Jerusalem until his appointed time. Three to four months later was Palm Sunday when Jesus visited Jerusalem again. John 1 tells us John the Baptist was baptizing at Bethany beyond Jordan. So this is where Jesus returned. The people there remembered Jesus. And they remembered hearing about Jesus. And they wanted to hear him. As they continued saying, John performed no signs. Yet everything he said about this man, about Jesus was true. And many believed in Jesus of those who were there. And John the Baptist preached. He preached repentance, judgment, the wrath of God, and that Jesus was the lamb of God who came to save away the sin uh, t- to take away the sin of the world. And they remembered what John the Baptist said. And then Jesus shows up, and there he is. And they respond to the preaching of the word of God. The result, many believed in Christ. No signs No wonders, no smoke and mirrors, no rock band, no silliness, no mimes, no drama. Why did they believe? Because of what John said about the man, Christ Jesus. Everything he said about the man, Christ, was true. The word of God was enough for these people to believe. They didn't need programs. They needed the word of God. They said, give us the book, in other words. Give us the word of God. They were not like today. When people think we have to use gimmicks, games, relevant, dynamic, communicators, whatever that means anyway. Anyway to win people to Christ and to desire the word of God. Noah as Washer once said, if you win them with carnal means, you will must keep them with carnal means. We need preaching, we need expositional preaching, and we need a love for sola scriptura, scripture alone. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and not just Sunday mornings for an hour. Luther was onto something in the midst of the Reformation, 1533, when he said, The Word of God is the greatest, most necessary, most important thing in Christendom. We are called by God to continue to be conformed into the image of Christ. Parallel to this is the continual transformation we are called to, the renewing of our mind. How? What's the primary means for this? The Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. More specifically stated, the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to accomplish the works or the work in our life. Considering sola scriptura, I'm going to take a little sidebar here for a moment. And this was, I love how the Lord threads things together as he did this morning, confirmed things in my own heart as I was considering uh, mentioning a little bit about William Tyndale, and then one of the brothers this morning as we were uh, in the office discussing mentioned William Tyndale, and, and it reminded me of to get the quote from him, and and then I read the quote and I said, yes, we need to hear this, we need to be reminded. But first, when we consider our Bibles, we consider this, considering the Word of God that we have, We ought to be thankful. If you own a Bible, be thankful. Christians over centuries would have given their lives, and some of them did, to have the Word of God in their own language in their hands. Christians in church history back in the day did not have always the Word of God in their hands. They would have given almost anything, including their lives, to have a copy of it. Blood was shed so that we could have the scriptures in our hands today. Such as William Tyndale. And I'll read this for us. This is from The Daring Mission of William Tyndale from Steve Lawson. This is Reformation Month, so you'll bear with me as this is... uh, Information that hopefully will uh, cause us to have fire beneath us. In August 1536, Tyndale stood trial before his accusers, and he was the one who translated the Scripture into a language that the people, the plowmen, could even understand. Tyndale stood trial before his accusers, who leveled a long list of charges against him. Along his offenses... Tyndale asserted that justification is by faith alone. Human traditions cannot bind the conscience. The human will is bound by sin. There is no purgatory. Neither Mary nor the saints offer prayers for us, and we are not to pray to them. All this made Tyndale an enemy of both church and state. He was condemned as a heretic. During a public service, Tyndale would have been excommunicated and stripped of his priesthood. According to the custom for such ceremonies, Tyndale emerged before a large gathering wearing his priestly robes. He was forced to kneel as his hands would be scraped with a knife or sharp glass, symbolizing the loss of all privileges of the priesthood. The bread and wine of the mass would be placed into his hands and then removed. He would be stripped of his vestments and reclothed as a layman. He would then be delivered over to the civilian authorities for the inevitable sentence of death. Forced back into his dungeon cell, a steady stream of priests and monks came to harass him and seek a recanting. October 6, 1536, Tyndale emerged from the castle and was paraded to the southern gates of the town where his execution still awaited. A large crowd assembled behind a barricade. In the the middle of a circular space, two great beams were raised in the familiar form of a cross, Hanging from the top of the central beam was a strong iron chain. Brushwood, straw, and logs were bundled and piled at its base. Amid pomp and pharisaical splendor, the general and the great doctors took their seats as spectators. The massive crowd parted, allowing the guards to bring Tyndale closer to his execution. Tyndale proceeded to the cross. The guards bound his feet to the bottom of the cross as a chain was fastened around his neck, pulling him tightly to the beam of wood. The wood was rearranged around the prisoner to encase him in combustible material. Gunpowder was sprinkled throughout on the brush. The executioner stood behind the cross, awaiting the signal from the procurer general to carry out the sentence. It was likely at this moment that Tyndale gazed into the heavens, And cried forth in prayer, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. God ultimately answered Tyndale's dying prayer. In the year he was martyred, 1536, a complete English Bible was already circulating in England, unknown to Tyndale. This work was predominantly drawn from Tyndale's own translation. The first of these Bibles was the Coverdale Bible, printed in 1536. A second English translation of the entire Bible would come as a result of the efforts of John Rogers in 1537. This version was known as the Matthews Bible. Brothers and sisters, learn of these Reformers. Learn of the martyrs, of what they did and how they suffered And they shed their blood so that we could have the word of God. What do we have today? Silly little young adults putting paint and destroying paintings that are many years old and gluing their hands to the wall. Foolishness. For what? And what do we have? Young people standing in the streets chanting this or chanting that, believing a lie. And here we have the truth in our hands. Oh, to live for this word and so be it if we must die for this word, that God would give us the grace. The works Jesus did proved who he was. The fruit we bear shows whether or not we are a part of the vine or not. The words Jesus used proved who he was. The words as Christians we speak parallel our profession of faith or contradict our profession of faith. The way Jesus used the scripture, it was a constant companion to him. They say of Bunyan, John Bunyan, if you cut him, he would bleed the Bible. How do we use the scripture in our daily life? Jesus withdrew from those who continued to reject him. Jesus will withdraw from calling to you if you continue to reject him over and over again as your heart would grow hardened. But as long as you are still breathing, there is hope for you to turn to Christ, to turn to Jesus, to repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord. You do not know when your last day will be. It could be today. When you stand before God, what would you say? Jesus was, was welcomed by those who wanted to hear him. Is the preaching welcomed in your heart time and time again? Is, it, is this a highlight of your week, so to speak? To come here and fellowship with the saints. And to hear the preaching of the word of God and to sing hymns to the Lord and to worship him. Jesus was welcomed by those who heard about him through the preaching of John the Baptist. Final question. Is, And individually you must answer this question. Is Jesus welcomed in your life? Does Jesus have all of you? All of your life? Does he have your heart this morning? As we remember in John, yes, we tell people you can know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we can read the the truth, that we have it in our hands, we have it in our mother tongue, we have it so we can understand it, we have it in uh, different translations, Lord, that we can understand. Men died for this. And we read about the works of Jesus, and the words of Jesus, and the way of Jesus, the withdrawing of Jesus, and the welcoming of Jesus. O oh Lord, you are worthy of our praise. We pray this day that you would leave no lost sinner without Christ, that you would give them restlessness in their hearts, you would give them sleeplessness, that you would weigh them down until they bow to Christ in faith and repentance. And Lord, we ask for those of us here who know you, Lord. Renew in us a passion for you. Revive our hearts. Let your word, your scriptures be a close companion to us. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.